When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. This episode is edited and produced by Craig Buddy of the History of Pirates podcast.com. That is a really great show. It's a fairly new one, um, but I'm a subscriber and a fan, so go have a listen. And thanks, Craig, for helping out your fellow podcaster here. And first of all, there's an, there's an announcement. There's a new project I started up, which is I translate a podcast called The Secret Cabinet. So the original was in German, Das Geheime Kabinett from Der Budla, who I've also interviewed a couple times on this show. The episode on the 95 Thesis, you know, Martin Luther's 95 Theses and the Sky Disc of Nebra were both interviews with Der Budla. So he has a show, Das Geheime Kabinett, with really great content. It's just kind of all these weird curiosities, like these historical artifacts that 100 years, or like let's say 200 years ago, uh, museums might have had but wouldn't have publicly displayed because of like erotic or pornographic nature or just indecency, just something you wouldn't put in front of a gentleman or ladies. So those interesting topics, I decided that that was really great. So And practice for this show, I decided to translate his German show into English. So you can find that on secretcabinet.com. It's like secret-cabinet.com or secret-cabinet.com. So go check that out. There'll be more English shows there to come. But for this show, I decided it's high time to get back to the chronological order. In the last chronological sort of mini-series that we had, we talked about the Celts, quote-unquote, up until they kind of brush against the Romans. And as I've said before, the reason I did a whole miniseries on the Celts is because the line between Celtic tribes and Germanic tribes is very blurry and becomes blurred over and over again throughout the centuries. But now I want to do a miniseries kind of starting where we left off last time. But this time I want to look at the Germanic tribes and starting with them encountering Romans. This episode is on the Cimbrian War, and I would start by the end of the 2nd century BC. The Germanic tribes in general started to brush up against Roman borders, and the Cimbrid tribe in particular were originally probably from the Jutland in modern Denmark, and at least according to Tacitus and Strabo, it's not actually that certain where they're originally from. But in any case, they started to migrate south, and they came in contact with and fought the Boai, a Celtic tribe where we get the word Bohemia and Bavaria probably from. And the Boai show up um, in other episodes already, and we'll probably have their own episode or mini-series. I'll probably pick apart, like, Boai and certain tribes. And the Cimbri kept going. They kept marching into modern Austria, which was known as Noricum at the time. And then it was a Celtic kingdom that some 50 years later became part of the Roman Empire. Now, Noricum was home to the Tarissi, which were a federation of Gallic tribes. And sorry if I'm butchering these uh, names, by the way. My German will get better as we get more into modern German. This Celtic Gaelic tribe was a Roman ally, 
And when the Cimbri show up, the Romans went to go help, basically. This brings us to our first encounter or battle, which is of Norea in 112 BC. And at the Battle of Norea, the Cimbri defeated the Romans. And luckily for the Romans, while they were just being annihilated, basically, the weather changed in their favor and a storm brewed up, which ended up saving the Romans from complete annihilation. And then we have the Teutons and the Cimbri kind of marching together. Neos Papirios Carbo, who was the Roman consul leading forces up from northern Italy. Carbo is an important character. The Cimbri and Teutons weren't idiots and heard of these mighty Romans, obviously, before. So when Carbo ordered them to leave, the Cimbri complied. Carbo sent guides with them to make sure they made it to the frontier. But in reality, the guides were leading them into an ambush. Now, somehow the Cimbri became aware of the treachery and decided to do a little bit of betrayal of their own. The Cimbri, instead of them being ambushed, they instead ambushed the Romans. Now, according to Theodor Mommsen, here's a quote, an engagement took place not far from Norea in the modern Carinthia, in which the betrayed gained the victory over the betrayer and inflicted on him considerable loss. A storm which separated the combatants alone prevented the complete annihilation of the Roman army. So Carbo managed to escape, and some survivors of his army. Now, he was disgraced and impeached as consul by the Senate for this. And Rome started to prepare for an invasion of Italy itself. But the Cimbri and Teutons never showed. They were headed to Gaul instead. Now, Rome prepared for the worst, but instead of invading Italy, the Cimbri and Teutons headed west towards Gaul there, in 105 BC was the Battle of Arosio. The Cimbri and Teutons would basically defeat another Roman army. Now, I keep mentioning this, the Cimbri and Teutons because in 109 BC, so four or five years before this battle, the Teutons kind of joined up and invaded when the uh, Cimbri invaded southern Gaul. And that Roman defeat in 105 BC, we have Marcus Unius of Silanus was the Roman consul, and they'd also defeated in 107 BC Lassius Cassius Longinus, and he was killed in the Battle of Bordigala, which was another battle in the Cimbrian War. So that was in 107, and this time the battle was fought between the Helvetian Tigurini under the command of Divico, and Divico would live on and become famous for fighting Caesar in 58 BC. And he's well famous in Switzerland. We'll get back to him in a future show, if I remember, when we talk about Caesar and the Helvetians. Those are multiple episodes right there, actually. So in 105, like I said, now the Battle of Orisio was actually the worst defeat of ancient Rome. And so I wanted to kind of back up and give a little bit more detail here. So on October 6, 105 BC, at a site between the town of Arosio, which is kind of modern-day orange in Vaucluse and the Rhone River, King Boyoryx, I'm not sure how to pronounce that exactly, but basically the Cimbri commander and of the Cimbri and Teutons. And then on the Roman side, we have two Roman armies commanded by proconsul Quintus Servilius Capo and consul Gnaeus Malius Maximus. One problem the Romans had from the start was that Capo and Maximus hated each other. Basically, Maximus was kind of green, but outranked Capo. Capo had more battle experience, but refused to cooperate or take orders from Maximus. And still, they had some 80,000 troops, as well as another 40,000 auxiliary troops, like allies and such. 
and also they had servants and camp followers and all kinds of other people. The initial contact between the two forces occurred when a detached picketing group under the legate Marcus Aurelius Scarus met an advance party of the Cimbri. The Roman force was completely overwhelmed, and the legate was captured and brought before Boiorix. Scaurus was not humbled by his capture and advised Boiorix to turn back before his people were destroyed by the Roman forces. The king of the Cimbri was a little ticked off at this, very much so in fact. He had Scaurus put in a wicker cage and then slowly roasted alive. So back at the Roman camp, and okay, no, no, wait, there was no Roman camp. Maximus and Capo hated each other enough that they set up camp on opposite sides of the river. So there was kind of a split Roman camp, or two separate Roman camps, basically, on opposite sides of the river. Now, eventually, Malleus tried talking Capo into setting up a unified camp, but Capo refused. And he eventually set up camp on the same side of the river, but still apart, and also closer to the Cimbri. And here's where things kind of just get stupid. So the site of the camps did give Boyoric some worry. 120,000 people really are a lot of Romans and allies, okay? Boyoric started to think about negotiating with Malleus. Somehow Capo got wind of this, though, and saw his chance of glory dwindle. So he did what any triumph-crazed Roman proconsul would do, he attacked unilaterally and as soon as possible to make sure they don't have a chance of negotiating a peace. Kaipo sent all that he had at the Cimbri. However, he didn't really think it through, because of the rushed nature, Boyorix had no problem defeating him, and Kaipo didn't even leave any defense for his own camp. So Boyorix went ahead and looted that too. Kaipo managed to escape, but his forces were annihilated. Boyorix had so much momentum, he just decided to keep going. He continued on to Malleus's camp. Maximus's forces just watched Caiopo's camp get destroyed and his forces annihilated, except that they weren't because their backs were to the river. Now, accounts vary of the casualty figures, but it's around 80,000 to 112,000. So not only were the Simbri completely outmanned, outnumbered, you know, by another 50% at least, but the Simbri routed them. I mean, they, they just slaughtered them. Now, at this point, Rome actually changed a few laws to allow a consul they wanted to be consul again. So before that, when a consul was consul, he couldn't become consul again in consecutive years to avoid dictatorships and that kind of thing, too much power. This kind of changed things because they wanted a consul that could actually defeat the Cimbri. And then basically they prepared for the probable attack on Italy and Rome. The terror Cimbricus was on everyone's minds. Except, again, it didn't really happen. The Cimbri instead headed for the Iberian Peninsula this time. The Cimbrian Teutons, and now also the Ambrones and Tigurines, just pillaged to their heart's content for another year or so. But in 102 BC, they did finally want a piece of Rome. The Teutons and Ambrones were at the Rhone. These two tribes intended to pass into Italy through the western passes, more along the coast, Cimbri and Tigurines were to take the northern route across the Rhine and later across the Tyrolean Alps. So kind of going north and then going south, crossing the Alps. But now the Romans finally got their act together. Gaius Marius was now consul again, and there's a lot more on Marius on the History of Rome podcast. 
I would have skimmed over a lot more of this stuff if there was more on these specific battles on the history of Rome, but there's not a whole lot. There is some on Marius's other campaigns. Uh, Marius is a pretty important figure in Rome at the time. But in any case, Marius was now waiting for the Embrone and Teutons, and he set up camp on a hill and set Ligurians out as bait. This was a different Roman army than the one they had fought before. I'm going to skip how Marius changed the army and made several reforms to make this all work. Again, Mike Duncan does a great job of describing the changes. Specifically, um, if you are curious, it's in the History of Rome podcast 31b. Basically, he changed the formation, levies to get into the army, created more of a meritocracy, changed the baggage train, etc. to make the army more effective. You know, it is really important, and it's, it, it does kind of change Roman military tactics and, and all this at the time, just specifically to defeat the Cimbri. You know, this is kind of an important campaign in history, I'd say, anyways. But it is more Roman than German history at this point, so let's kind of keep moving. So in any case, Marius' bait worked. Remember, he, he sent out the, that one tribe, and the Teutons attacked and walked right into an ambush. Now, the Roman accounts claim that in the ensuing massacre, 90,000 Teutons were slain, and 20,000, including their king Teutobod, were captured. The only surviving reports are Roman, but certainly the complete annihilation of the Teutons and Ambrons speaks to the crushing nature of their defeat. Now, Plutarch mentions that during the battle, the Ambrones began to shout, Ambrones! As their battle cry, the Ligurian troops fighting for the Romans, on hearing this cry, found that it was identical to an ancient name in their country, which the Ligurians often use when speaking of their descent. So they returned the shout, Ambrones. Now, Roman historians recorded that 300 of the captured women committed mass suicide, which passed into Roman legends of Germanic heroism. Here's a quote from Jerome in the beginning of the 5th century. By the conditions of the surrender, 300 of their married women were to be handed over to the Romans. When the Teuton matrons heard of this stipulation, they first begged the consul that they might be set apart to minister in the temples of Ceres and Venus. Then when they failed to obtain their request and were removed by the lictors, they slew their little children and next morning were all found dead in each other's arms, having strangled themselves in the night. In any case, Gaius Marius had, then had plenty of time to head east to cut the Cimbri off at the pass. I guess that expression had to come from somewhere. The Battle of Vercelli, or the Battle of Rodin Plain, in 101 BC was the Roman victory of Marius over the Cimbri and is basically near the settlement of Vercelli in, in Cisalpine Gaul. Now, much credit for this victory has been given to the actions of proconsul Quintus Lutatius Cadillus's legate, whose name is Lucius Cornelius Sulla, who led the Roman army and also their allies. Now, the Cimbri were, like the Teutons, virtually wiped out. Roman sources claim to have killed some 140,000 and captured 60,000, including large numbers of women and children. And I'm not sure if this is true or not, but an interesting footnote here is that some of the surviving captors from this battle are reported to have been among the rebelling slaves in the later Third Servile War. Now, because this is the end of a couple of Germanic tribes here, let me break down the battle a little further. And there's a couple of different sites where the battle supposedly taken place. But in any case, the Cimbri, you know, kind of rode and marched out of the Alps and were heading south. Calvary was around 13,000 strong, and they rode onto the battlefield. 
and then behind them came 197,000 strong infantry. And Marius then made a final sacrifice to the gods, according to Plutarch. Marius washed his hands, lifting them up to heaven, vowed to make a sacrifice of a hundred beasts should victory be his. The Romans got into position first, and this was kind of on purpose so that they could set themselves up so their armor could be reflecting the sunlight, basically. And again, according to the Roman sources, the Cimbri then thought the sky was on fire. Sensing their sudden anxiety, the Romans then attacked. The Cimbri cavalry were taken completely by surprise by this, and the Cimbri at first kind of backed up a little bit, and the Roman legionaries then engaged the Cimbri infantry. This caused a little bit more anxiety in the Cimbri ranks, I suppose, because Plutarch writes that the Romans now were able to slaughter the enemy with ease. Boiorix and his noblemen made a last stand in which they were all killed. The Romans had won a complete and stunning victory. I mean, again, it was just a massacre. This basically put the end of any Germanic tribes' plans to invade Rome for the foreseeable future. Now, politically, in the history of Rome at this time, this kind of marks a continuation of rivalry between Marius and Sulla, and then eventually kind of goes off into one of the first of Rome's great civil wars. And then, you know, there's all kinds of changes in Italy, like all Italian soldiers become citizens, for instance. All Italian legions are Roman legions. And this kind of leads into the next generation, which, you know, includes Pompey and Julius Caesar and all that, which, you know, obviously I'll get back to in the next episode or in two episodes. There is some interesting notes here. There is mention of the Cimbri later on in 90 to 88 BCE that they were, you know, ravaging Italy while the social war is going on. So maybe they weren't completely wiped out? And then a decade later, ambassadors were sent to the Cimbri to request military aid. And these might have been Cimbri that were actually living in northern Europe. At least you can guess that from the context of these sources. So maybe these were the original, like, Jutland, like Danish, kind of Germanic Cimbri. It's really hard to say. Maybe, you know, similar name and the Romans got confused. A lot of the sources are kind of murky on, on these tribes and who these tribes were and where they came from. Which, you know, they didn't even always have right whether they were Germanic or Celtic. But according to Julius Caesar, the Belgian tribe of the Atuatutsi was descended from the Cimbri and Teutoni, who upon their march into our province in Italy set down such of their stock and stuff as they could not drive or carry with them on the near, that is like the west side of the Rhine. That's a quote of Julius Caesar's. And he said that they left some 6,000 men of their company there with guard and garrison. So he's saying that the Cimbri actually founded the city of Atuat in Belgium. And eventually that town was taken over by the Germanic Tungri and became uh, Tungorum, which is the modern city of Tongaren. So, you know, that could be some kind of Cimbri heritage there. And then the population of modern-day Himalant claims to be the heirs of the ancient Cimbri. And some of these adventures are described by the Danish Nobel Prize-winning author Johannes V. Jensen, himself born in Himalant. And there's, there's even a Cimbrian bull erected in Aalborg, in the capital of 
a, a region of North Jutland. And there's also a German ethnic minority speaking the Cimbrian language that have settled in the mountains between Vicenza, Verona, and Trento in Italy. They're also known as the Seven Communities, and also called the Cimbri. And for hundreds of years, this isolated population, now there are some 4,400 inhabitants, give or take, and they've also claimed direct descendants from the Cimbri that basically retreated to this area after the Roman aftermath, so the ones that weren't captured and got away. But what's more likely is that they were maybe settlers from Bavaria in the Middle Ages. Most linguists kind of are committed to the hypothesis of sort of 11th to 12th century immigration to explain the presence of small German-speaking communities in the north of Italy rather than like the old Germanic Gothic invasions. But, you know, there's some genetic studies that seem to prove a Celtic descendants of most inhabitants in the region, but not Germanic. And that is also reinforced by, like, the Gaulish kind of toponyms, such as those ending with ago, like, you know, from the Celtic ako, like Asiago, for instance. And if you hear that, you know, some of these French and Italian places were Cimbrian in origin, probably because that was sort of popularized by the humanists in the 14th century, like this theory that there's, you know, Cimbrian blood still around in that region. So, you know, probably not true. Like, not Germanic blood, at least. For example, in 1709, Frederick IV of Denmark paid the region a visit, and he was greeted as their king. The population kind of kept its independence during the Venice Republic and then was later severely devastated in World War I. And as a result, many Cimbri have kind of left the mountainous region of Italy and, you know, now they're dispersed all over the world, you know, living in cities and, and what have you. Strabo actually gives a description of Cimbric folklore, and he says that their wives, who accompany them on their expeditions, were also accompanied by priestesses and seers. These were kind of older, like gray-haired, dressed in white, you know, kind of cloaks with girdles of bronze, usually barefoot, but armed with swords. And they would kind of set up this ritual, you know, they'd crown them with wreaths and bring them to a vessel and the the priestess would kind of kneel over or bend over the kettle and would cut the throat of each prisoner after he had been lifted up. And from the blood that was collected in this kettle, some of the priestesses would then like do this divination thing where they could prophesy or tell the future. Others would do similar kind of divination from, you know, the body or the entrails of the prisoners, and they would kind of mutter this prophecy of victory for their own people. And then during battle, these priestesses had another role, which was to kind of be the drummer boys and beat on the hides that were stretched over these kind of wicker drums and had this, you know, supposedly very unearthly noise to it. The Cimbri were depicted as ferocious warriors that did not fear death. The host was followed by women and children on carts, and then these older priestesses were kind of, you know, sacrificing prisoners and sprinkling their blood, telling the future and that kind of thing. And if the Cimbri did in fact come from Jutland, evidence that they practiced ritualistic sacrifice may be found in the Haraldskare woman which was discovered in Jutland in 1835. And there's like noose marks and skin piercings were evident and, and she had been thrown into a bog rather than buried or cremated. So there's possibly some parallels there. 
There's another one, the Gundestrup cauldron, which is found in Himalant. Maybe a sacrificial vessel like the one described in Strabo's text. You know, hard to say. The work itself was of Thracian origin. So, you know, again, it's not really close to the source. So take it with a grain of salt, I'd say. Then we have the same basic problems that we have in the last miniseries was, were the Cimbri really a Germanic language-speaking people, or were they actually a Celtic-speaking people? And that's, you know, again, because Greeks and Romans tended to refer to all groups north of their, you know, the Alps, the Danube, whatever their border was, as Gauls, Celts, Germani, pretty indiscriminately, interchangeably. So Caesar even seems to be, at one point, the first author to really distinguish between Germani and Celts or Gauls. Caesar was also, like I brought up before, kind of politically motivated to split the two groups up, namely by the Rhine River. You know, kind of, that was his political goal to say, okay, I want to conquer everything west of the Rhine. So again, you can't really trust Caesar or Tacitus or Strabo or any of these guys um, when they're describing individuals or tribes to Celts or like Germanic-speaking peoples. I've I've said that all before. I I don't want to say it every episode, but even in this case, it's not really clear 100% what the Cimbri sounded like or what language they spoke. So some historians lump them in with the Celts, and most ancient sources kind of categorize them as Germanic. So I also had to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, when am I going to stop talking about Celts and when am I going to stop talking about Germanic? And well, Simbri fell on this side. So yeah, whatever that means. The few clues we have about their languages is that the way that they called the Baltic or North Seas was that the Pliny the Elder states that the Simbri called it Mori Marusa, which kind of has more of a Celtic origin than Germanic. But again, Pliny didn't have this from a primary source either. He heard this from somebody that that's what they called the North Sea. So uh, forget I even said anything, really. I mean, who knows? The known Cimbri chiefs, their names look Celtic, including Boiorix, which may even mean king of the Boi or like king of the strikers. And then there's Gesorix, which means spear king, and Lugius, which might have been named after the Celtic god Lugus, who I've mentioned in a previous episode. So they might have had Celtic names. You know, Germanic tribes, people in Germanic tribes might have had Celtic names. There might have been that much of a mix. So it's really hard to say. There was a Vandal king later, which is Gesorix, which is very close to Gesorix. And, you know, Vandals were clearly Germanic. So again, Maybe they just had kind of Celtic names. Maybe the origin of the name doesn't mean anything. Like it wasn't a signifier of ethnicity or language. It's just someone, it's just a name. So again, this is all things that we'll never really have an answer to. But I just wanted to kind of point that out. So, you know, I wasn't being sloppy. I wasn't just lumping these in as Germanic. Like there is some evidence that they're Celtic. Others, like for instance, Jean Marcal wrote that the Cimbri were more associated with the Helvetii and even closer to the Celtic Tigorini. And if they really were from Jutland, as you know, the story goes, Jutland is very Germanic. It has no Celtic place names. So that, you know, people just don't know, like maybe when they headed south, according to the mainstream story or legend, that there was kind of a Gallicization as they headed through Gaul. 
So they lived in Gaul for a whole generation before these wars happened. So they might have just taken a kind of Celticized Germanic name as they moved further and further away from Jutland. Plutarch wrote that the Cimbri were tall, light, blue-eyed. Here's a quote. The most prevalent conjecture was that they were some of the German peoples which extended as far as the northern ocean, a conjecture based on their great stature, their light blue eyes, and the fact that the Germans call robbers Cimbri. Anyways, there you have it. Uh, next episode, I, I'm not sure exactly where I'll pick up yet. I'm not sure if it's Caesar already or Caesar in two episodes, but I'm committed to this uh, mini-series of Germans and Romans. I'm not sure if it'll be like another three, four, or five-parter, whatever that'll be, but I'll get through this mini-series, and then I'll take another break from the chronological order and hopefully have a couple more interviews lined up or topics that don't just fit into a nice, neat timeline, like the podcast on antisemitism or something like that. I have a couple of those on my list to do, but anyways, for now, for the next time, it'll be Romans and Germans. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check out secret-cabinet.com. Thanks again. Bye. Edited by a pirate. Yar. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.